Welcome to the We've Seen a Thing or Two podcast. As investigators and mediators focused on regulatory and workplace conflicts, we have seen a thing or two and learned a thing or two. In each episode, we will be speaking with industry leaders in regulation, human resources and law, as well as thought leaders and top performers in investigations and mediation. We bring our audience interesting and cutting edge information on conflict management as it relates to professional regulation and workplace disputes. This industry is one of many views and we have to say that some views shared by our guests are not necessarily shared by the We've Seen a Thing or Two podcast, its hosts or sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Bernard & Associates, trusted investigation and mediation professionals since 2004. Now here's your host, Dean Bernard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Huh, I know you're probably wondering, what's going on? Because you're expecting to hear Dean. But this today is a podcast takeover, and today we've switched things up a little bit. I'm Brenda Bedard. Some of you may know me, some of you may not. I'm Dean's wife, I'm his partner, and I'm the vice president of Bernard & Associates. I oversee the daily operations of the company. So today, we have a very special guest. Dean. You got it. Today, Dean's in the hot seat, and he's ready to answer some questions on the topic of investigating illegal practitioners. So as you know, with our podcast, there's usually an introduction of the guest. Most of our listeners know who Dean is, so we're going to keep this one short and sweet. Dean has been a professional investigator for closing in on about 30 years now, and that includes roles as a police officer, a regulatory investigator, an investigations manager, and Dean founded and has run Bernard & Associates since 2003, where he and his team have conducted thousands of investigations in regulatory and workplace matters. Dean is an advisor, consultant, a coach, and he is a leader in investigations and conflict resolution communities. Educationally, Dean's background includes a nursing diploma from Fleming College. Yeah, that's right, everyone. Dean started off as a registered nurse, and he worked in critical care and research before he entered the investigation field. He holds a Bachelor of Arts in Health Administration and Ethics from York University, a Master's of Laws in Alternative Dispute Resolution from Osgoode Hall Law School, and he has a postgraduate certificate in diversity and inclusion from Cornell University. Now, I could make a joke there for those who are Office fans, Cornell, Bernard, Nard Dog. We'll just leave it at that. Okay, okay. That's enough background and enough of me trying to be funny. Welcome to the show, Dean. (laughs) Thank you, Brenda. Yeah, this is very odd being uh, interviewed by you, but I do appreciate the kind introduction. I've provided those intros on many previous shows. It's nice to be on the other side of things for a change. (laughs) Okay, so let's just get to it, Dean, because I know we have a fair amount to cover today. So today you're here to talk about illegal practitioners, and I know that this is an area that's near and dear to you in terms of the satisfaction you get from these cases. Well, that is true. I, you know, I have to say it's it's critically important to deal with illegal practitioners. And there are some interesting cases and investigations that we do. I, I think the illegal practitioner cases are some of the most interesting. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they involve a real blend of investigative skills where you have to be creative, strategic, and use the expertise you have in multiple facets of investigative work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we start by telling the listeners a little bit about What are illegal practitioners? What does that mean? Well, illegal practice is when people practice professions that they are not licensed or registered to do so. 
that can be fake doctors, engineers, dentists, lawyers, mm-hmm. the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. They're dangerous, frankly, and they put the public mm. at severe risk. For sure. Many of you, no doubt, have watched the movie Catch Me If You Can. You'll all remember Leonardo DiCaprio. Love um, it. <laughs> it was a fun movie to watch, and it was supposedly a true story dramatizing a fellow by the name of Frank Abagnale. He posed as a doctor, a pilot, several other professions on his sort of fraudulent journey through his 20s and 30s. The story suggests, though, that Frank Abagnale committed victimless crimes because he never actually flew a plane. He never actually treated a patient as a doctor. And, you know, to a certain extent, some of this is true. It's also true that he left quite a trail of victims behind him, though. The story that he evaded capture by the FBI for five years and received special early parole to work for the FBI are, frankly, like many of his prior exploits, dramatically exaggerated in that movie. Mm-hmm. In the end, though, people who pretend to be something they are not, from my perspective, always create harm in one way or another and always create victims. Okay, so Hollywood aside, Leonardo DiCaprio aside, who's doing this? Well, they come in all forms, really. Some have never practiced, never been educated in a profession, while others have once been members of a profession, but maybe they were revoked from practicing due to some other violation that deemed them unsafe or lacking the good character, for example, to serve the public. I've seen fake nurses in dialysis units, fake veterinarians performing spading and neutering, fake physicians offering cosmetic procedures, and even some invasive procedures, if you can believe it, and fake dentists filling cavities. And believe it or not, we've even seen fake dentists doing dental implants. Oh, no. Now, some of them set up their own shop, working out of a basement or or even an office. We've even seen some that have mobile on-the-go services. It's bordering on the ridiculous, frankly, but these people that get into this will do whatever they can. And some even manage to defraud their way into hospitals or other legitimate practice settings. Okay, so how are they getting away with this? Aren't there checks in place, especially at a hospital? Well, they're fraudsters first and foremost. And that's really the name of their game is to get around the rules, deceive, and be something you are not while convincing those around you that you are. Often they prey on vulnerable communities like new immigrants who might not know about licensure Mm -hmm. or, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, sometimes they learn the guy down the street can help them out. And, you know, they're going to take that help because maybe they can't get it anywhere else or they don't know where to get it anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's economically challenged communities who can't afford some services. Mm -hmm. In these scenarios, oftentimes these people go unreported. And really the sad reality is that They're providing some service to those who might have no access to any service. So like so many things, it's our marginalized communities that suffer the most and are most likely to be victimized. Illegal practitioners do cause real harm, including financial, emotional, and physical harm. It's no movie. And really, the hurt can be very real. And we've seen it firsthand. Yeah, and it's frightening. Dean, so how big is this issue? I think it's very big. There's no study I can quote. I mean, based on the number of cases we investigate, my guess is we're only really scraping the tip of the iceberg. We rely on reports or complaints that people are typically making anonymously and in many cases are afraid to make. So because of the nature of what we see, it leads me to believe that for every case that we're aware of, there's probably dozens more that we simply don't know about. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about the Botox parties alone, right? Some person gets their hands on some Botox some syringes, and oftentimes this Botox is being illegally distributed and administered by people who have no proper training and no credentials to do this. Right. 
My goodness. So, so Dean, who's supposed to be dealing with this type of behavior? That's a good question, Brenda, because the laws that regulate professions and professionals are generally speaking in Canada anyway, provincial laws. And I, I believe in the United States also state laws. And the regulation of most professions in Canada and most provinces in Canada, in fact, I think all provinces in Canada, is sort of delegated by provincial governments to regulators. Now, some would say that they're responsible for regulating those who are legitimately in the profession. And why should they have to deal with those who pretend to be? Of course. That should be the responsibility of the police. However, the regulator's mandate is to protect the public. Mm -hmm. And what organization is better suited to address illegal practitioners than the body responsible for the applicable profession? I mean, let's be honest, the police fraud units, they've got an overwhelming number of cases to investigate. These cases often would take a backseat at best. Now, I'm not saying they don't care. I'm not saying the police don't do some of these cases in some jurisdictions. We've seen it. They definitely do. But they simply can't be as efficient at dealing with these cases as the regulators. And so it often falls to the regulator. And typically, in my experience, the regulators take this issue very seriously. Mm -hmm. They do their best to address it. And they hire us to be that investigative service that assists them to manage these cases. Okay. So now we get the investigation. Tell us, what would a typical investigation look like then? Oh, that's this is the fun part, right? This is the part that, <laughs> that I think most people would tune into and want to hear. Yeah. You know, the tactics we need to employ are, are interesting, frankly, because over the last 20 years, we've investigated hundreds of these cases. And today I'm going to share some stories. I can't provide all the tactics that we use to catch these folks. After all, we can't give away our methodologies for uh, investigation. I mean, we don't want to tip off the bad guys, so to speak. Uh, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, we do a lot of regulatory work. We investigate legitimate practitioners of different professions, and we never refer to them as bad guys because they simply aren't. People make mistakes. People are often innocent of the things that they're accused of doing, but they are legitimate practitioners doing a role that they are entitled, licensed, regulated, and expected to perform. And we would never, ever refer to them as bad guys. Of course. But- I think of these illegal practitioners as bad guys. <laughs> I mean, they're doing something they shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. They're putting the public at risk. They're putting themselves at risk. They're putting everybody at risk. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the way some of them would dispose of equipment. I mean, I could go on and on. But anyway, right. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I digress. We'll get away from the bad guy reference. And I can tell you that the way in which we do these investigations really varies. I mean, it can include all or some of a long list. And, you know, normally I try not to read things to, in these podcasts, but I have written down just a, a little bit of a laundry list here of some of the components of an investigation. And okay. those, those would include things like background searches, locate searches, surveillance, undercover phone calls, undercover visits where we're typically posing as clients, but sometimes in other roles mm -hmm. as well. I've done a few of those. <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> sometimes fabricating complex background stories and making multiple contacts with a person. We have to wear wires or hidden body cameras to capture evidence, implementing the art of persuasion to get cooperation where we need, because before we can sometimes get in and do an undercover operation, sometimes we need information and we have to sort of draw that information out. And that requires a certain tact, a certain amount of persuasion, as mm -hmm. I say. Yeah interviewing in a variety of different involved parties. You, you might find yourself doing a case like this and interviewing, for example, I'll just pick a profession, dentistry. You might be interviewing a legitimate dentist who runs a practice who, without realizing it, hired an illegal practitioner to work in his or her office. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes uh, very 
touchy subject. And so again, you have to be able to interview with some tact and to work with people, recognizing who the real victims are here, including perhaps the unknowing dentist who hires an illegal practitioner or the unknowing physiotherapist who brings in a fake massage therapist, for example. All of these are things that we have to do to try and get through this. The last thing I have on the list is search warrant applications and executing search warrants, which is itself a bit of an art form in some ways. Mm -hmm. It's very specific. And we have a couple of specialists on our team who are just expert at this. Now, some or all of these tactics are required to get the evidence we need to prosecute or seek the civil remedies to stop behavior. The broad actions I'm telling you about could all be broken down into a variety of special approaches and extraordinary measures that we go to to get what we need. We've planted cameras in the middle of the night in public places to capture images that later could afford us evidence that we can use. Now, of course, we need to know where the line is in our investigative work Mm -hmm. to ensure we're acting appropriately and, and we're staying within the law. We've been threatened, assaulted, (laughs) exposed to many risks doing this work, but it's very gratifying to know the impact that it has in protecting people from harm. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine going into a home of a person, you know they're a legal practitioner, you don't know them. You might be going in there and taking off your shirt for a fake chiropractor or opening your mouth and letting them get close enough to you so that you can ensure that you've captured their intent and that what you need is on camera or on audio, and then you got to stop them. And find some excuse to get out of there, knowing that you might need to go back. So maybe as an undercover still, or maybe openly as the investigator. So, you know, these can all be very uncomfortable and and risky situations. Yeah, absolutely. So now, can you share some examples of the cases that we've done or you have done? I've got a few. I've got I've got a few hundred. (laughs) I'm just going to stop here for just one moment and let you know that as we're recording this podcast, we have the most beautiful, cutest bulldog in the room, sleeping underneath the table and snoring. And I just don't have the heart (laughs) to move her. So some of you may hear a few little snores in the background. And if you do, apologies in advance. It's not Brenda. (laughs) Yeah, it's not Brenda. (laughs) So a story you might find interesting. A person complains to a dental regulator that they received shoddy dental care at a quote-unquote dentist that they saw. The regulator checks and discovers the person's not listed as a dentist in their register. So we're called to look into the situation and we interview the complainant to get all the details of their experience and what they observed. This is a very key component, of course, to the investigation. One of the first steps we have to do is understand what we're dealing with. It turns out this person only provides services within their own ethnic community and on a referral basis only. Now, this is often done, the referral part especially, is often done really to minimize exposure to the authorities, right? If if they only treat and work with people that Mm -hmm. have been referred to them, it it sort of insulates them from that fear that the person coming in might be someone that could cause them a problem. Now, because of this, we can't get a referral because the informant's too afraid to be implicated, again, within his own community for exposing this person. So undercover for this particular case really isn't an option. What we do, we, we set up surveillance. We set up surveillance on the house and we watch who comes and goes. Of course, prior to this, we've run all we can on the property, the homeowners, renters, cars in the driveway, you name it. We want to know who this person is. They might be a frequent flyer that we've dealt with before. They might have something on the internet if we can get their name. So there's all kinds of ways to get additional evidence. So we run their property, run their cars, get everything we can so that we know what we're dealing with. 
like I say, they might have a prior. We've had one guy we investigated five times. Yep. So, I mean. I think every one of our staff went, yeah, went that one, undercover. Yeah, everybody that had one. to do their own undercover on the same guy over the course of about three years. <laughs> over a day or two, we tracked basically the, the comings and goings of, of approximately 12 people that came in and out the side entrance of the house. And, and this was pretty regular with sort of a, a typical time frame of about 45 minutes to an hour. We then gathered some additional evidence. I can't disclose here what and how we got that evidence, but that coupled with all the other work we did gave us enough for a search warrant. And then we got the search warrant, we applied for it, it was granted, and then we entered the home to get what we needed. And in fact, when we're entering a home and conducting a search warrant, we typically bring the police with us really more to it for a sort of keep the peace and safety mm-hmm. uh, component of that. You can imagine two strangers showing up at your door with a piece of paper that says they have a search warrant doesn't carry the same kind of weight as no. it might <laughs> if there's a police officer with us. That's for sure. So once we did all of this and we completed the search warrant, the treatment that was being provided was being provided in the basement of the house. We got in there and there was like a makeshift operatory without proper equipment, without a proper dental chair. It was a lawn chair with a recliner on it. Um, The equipment didn't seem to be getting sterilized. The conditions were absolutely filthy. It was truly disgusting. Oh, it's awful. All I can say is gross. No (laughs) sterilized equipment. Gosh, that is like, that is so over the top and dangerous. I can't even believe it. And, And I know it's true. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I've got other examples I, I can tell you about. I mean, we've done cases involving other professionals where they use instruments like scalpels and they had rust on them. Uh, we've even found drugs in some of the searches that we've done mm-hmm. with no explanation about how they got them or where they got them from. The equipment they have can often be found in disrepair. Jeez. Oh, well, I do think we have time for one more story. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, like I said, I've got many of them. Here's one about a chiropractor. Well, a fake chiropractor. Okay. Uh, so this guy was revoked from practicing because he was found guilty of sexually abusing a client. Uh, he set up shop in a very small and remote community. So getting in to see him was going to be a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, what I concocted, this was one I personally did. I concocted a sort of a several day plan where I went into the community posing as a tourist there to fish for a few days. Oh, yeah, yeah, like I fish all the time, right? <laughs> I made myself obvious in the community. And then in the afternoon, one day, early afternoon on, on day two, I, I checked beforehand to make sure this guy was in his office. It was open. Uh-huh. And then basically, I, you're going you're gonna to laugh when I say this, I staged a fall. I basically tumbled myself down a few steps mm-hmm. uh, outside and faked a back injury. I did it in front of a bunch of people. So, you know, people would come to my assistance. Okay, awesome. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I married this guy, everyone. <laughs> Proud. Well, well, most people will say in for a penny, in for a pound, as I say. (laughs) You got to get the job done. So anyway, a few concerned people who saw me fall asked if they could help. And I explained I couldn't straighten up. And they suggested I see Doc. Mm. That's right, Doc. Okay. uh, The local chiropractor that I later learned most people knew wasn't registered legally to practice. But they went and saw him anyway, because once again, it's a community where this was all the options they had. It was about 150 feet from Doc's practice. So somebody helped me up and basically helped me into the office. I'm faking like my back hurts. And, you know, we get into the office and I can't remember exactly what the person said, but it was something like, oh, this poor guy just fell and he can't straighten up. Wow. And uh, yeah, so Doc was happy to help and bang, I was in. The next morning, I drove home with all the evidence I needed. Jeez, sounds like you should have been nominated for an Academy Award for that acting. (laughs) Yeah, well, I try my best. (laughs) And I'm sure you've all guessed. I may have heard that story once or twice before. But seriously, Dean, can you tell everyone what happens to these people once they're caught? 
Yeah, no, of course I can. And, and this is an important point. There are going to be some different remedies for dealing with these folks, depending on, mm-hmm. you know, the jurisdiction and the legislation in that jurisdiction. But we do a lot of this work in Ontario. We've done some in some other provinces as well, where the legislation is very similar. Mm-hmm. But regulators can generally go one of two routes. They can prosecute under the provincial act that exists that says you thou shalt not practice this profession. Thou shalt not, in the case of medical or uh, healthcare professions, there's often controlled acts that are restricted to individuals who practice certain professions. So there's laws that say that if you're not part of the profession, you can't do these things. And so these things can be prosecuted. Another option is to go to civil court and obtain injunctions or court orders that order the person to cease and desist. Mm -hmm. Now, prosecutions typically lead to fines. And if the situation is egregious enough and not a first offense, which it often isn't, believe it or not, it can lead to jail time. Civil injunctions typically lead to court orders to cease and desist and often orders to pay the cost of the legal action involved. So this is a route that's often liked by some of the regulators because it's an opportunity for them to get some of the costs back on the expenses of going to court, the legal fees. Sure, yeah. Repeat offenders can get jail time. We've had cases Mm -hmm. where somebody who's had a court order issued in the past, we reinvestigate them you know, a year later or six months later, they're doing it again. And then they do get jail time. That five-time repeater eventually got quite a bit of jail time. I I believe, unfortunately, most of it was served as house arrest, but that's more of a commentary on the availability of jails Jails. and things like that. (laughs) You know, we've achieved fines when we've prosecuted. We've achieved fines of well over $100,000 and jail time in some prosecutions. Injunctions have led to huge costs for the offenders. And we've seen some significant jail time for those who repeated the offenses once a court order is issued. Now, aside from those opportunities, I mean, another potential action is that our investigations can lead to us sort of tying it all up with a nice little bow on top and giving it to the police mm-hmm. who sure. can then potentially lay criminal charges. Because as you can imagine, some of these behaviors are equivalent to assault. There can be assault charges, charges for such things as administering a noxious substance in the event of administering drugs, for example, right. and fraud charges. I remember one huge case that we did that involved a person who put together a nursing agency and then hired people that were not actually nurses and then sent them out to many different nursing homes and long-term care homes to work as nurses. And then we ended up working cooperatively with the police the OPP, actually, who ended up uh, laying significant fraud charges against this individual. Now, that one sounds like a couple of movies that we've seen. Yeah, absolutely. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything that the public can do to avoid these illegal practitioners? Yeah, I, there is. And I think this is an important point. I mean, the best thing you can do is research anyone that you intend to use for professional services. Right. You never know when somebody who even who you thought was legitimate may no longer be legitimate. That's right. Um, yeah. You know, so pretty much all regulators of professions have registers or roles that you can search online and see if a person is a member of that profession. And in most cases, you can see if they have any history of misconduct as well. So it's another way of sort of checking up. I mean, it really is a buyer beware situation where you need to look out for yourself. Mm-hmm. Sadly, though, as I mentioned earlier, many of the illegal practitioners will prey on those with limited choices, mm-hmm. like a small community right. where there's no other option, an immigrant community with limited knowledge of the rules around licensure, or economically depressed communities that, that have limited resources. So right. yeah, it's still a problem for those folks. Yeah. And there's a tendency to, to trust your own so to yeah, speak. Exactly. Right? So this has really been a great session, Dean. Lots of information. I really want to thank you for this. It's been exciting to host it. <laughs> well, I'm happy. I'm happy to do it. It's been exciting to be a guest. 
But you, more than anyone, know that we have a tradition of asking all our guests about what things are near and dear to their hearts when they're not engaged in their day-to-day work. So now, mister, it's your turn to share. (laughs) Okay, well... You know that after family, mm-hmm. my business is really my next big love. <laughs> I'm blessed to be in a position where I get to work on it every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know, you know, you want me to talk about things other than my business. Yes. So, uh, so here goes. Because I hear enough about it. Yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> uh, I know you do. Uh, I really enjoy staying fit and healthy. And, and I actually like the gym, believe it or not. I particularly love boxing. Yeah. Uh, I was actively competing in boxing until a few years ago. And now I'm more of a person who does boxing training. But I am hoping maybe to do some casual sparring again sometime soon. Mm -hmm. My absolute favorite thing to do, though, as Brenda well knows, is traveling with her. We love to go to different unique destinations and, and for us to do as many amazing things as we can. Right now, scuba diving with the Great Whites in Australia or South Africa is very high on my bucket list. Uh (laughs) Well, you know, what can I say? Yeah, life is about experiences, not things. So I'm all about packing in as many of those experiences Mm -hmm. as possible. And I'm with you with that, but... A trip to South Africa or Australia, although it sounds amazing, I think you'll be diving with the sharks without me. (laughs) So maybe a cage I would try, or I'll be watching you from the boat. (laughs) So that's going to do it for this episode. We want to thank you all again for listening, and please send us your feedback on how we're doing. Our goal here, as with everything that we do, is constant and never-ending improvement, and we need your feedback to do that. Our podcast is linked to our website, bernardink.com, and you can always reach out to Dean at dbernard at bernardink.com or Dean Bernard on LinkedIn. You can reach me as well at bbernard at bernardink.com or at Brenda Bernard on LinkedIn. I want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast. It was a lot of fun doing the podcast takeover and having Dean as my guest and having him in the hot seat. I want to wish everybody well. Take care, everyone. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next time on the We've Seen a Thing or Two podcast. Thank Bye-bye, you. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.